Hey everyone, it's time to come together at Anthology Together, July 12th through 15th, 2021 at the Gaylord Texan Resort and Convention Center. In person, yes, I said it, Elizabeth and I are excited to announce that this is the first time we will ever meet in person. The Edip Experience will be there recording. It's going to be exciting. You can register at anthologytogether.com and enter the promo code EDUPPROMO with only the D being lowercase. That's E-D-U-P-P-R-O-M-O with only the D lowercase for $75 off your registration. It's time to come together, ladies and gents. We'll see you at Anthology Together. Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Leiba, and producer Elvin Freitas bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. If you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now, you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to? And are you spending more time building reporting than listening in on what your students really want? All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing. Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. Find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team at MDT is absolutely amazing. Whether your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution and it's free. mdtmarketing.com slash edup. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Edip Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond. We do like to have just a tad bit of fun, little teeny, little tiny bits of fun along the way, or at least I do. I'm not sure about my co-host. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. She's the phenom, the phenomenal one. Liz, how are you today? I'm doing amazing. Yesterday, I co-hosted uh, Danielle Shelton, she pitch hitted and she stepped in and guest hosted. And I actually had the opportunity to say my full name, which is Elizabeth Liba. Yeah, that will happen reason, here with me, Liz. <laughs> for some, exactly. For some reason, you like to call me Liz. So now on social media, everyone's calling me Liz in like quotes. So I'm like, okay, this is really catching on now. So I'm well, doing amazing. And I actually missed you yesterday when we didn't co-host together. So Well, thank you. I, you know, and when I have to have a replacement for you, I don't miss you at all, but I tell, <laughs> I, I do like to tell you that I do miss you. No, of course, of course I do. And you know, it's funny, I, I, we've been doing this for so many times and so many episodes now that when I have a fill in for you, when you can't do it, 
it is it feels a little disjointed like yeah. do i make fun of this fill-in host yeah do because I then they'll, they'll feel they'll they'll feel offended unlike me i just roll with the punches with all of your your little jokes exactly all of your insults <laughs> like if i say to danielle shelton who of course is is uh the host of the tips and tricks uh, po- yes. podcast now part of a part of the edup experience podcast yes. network yes. if i say oh gosh danielle you've been in higher ed for at least 62 years then you know and i'm messing I with her then think she might she'll be- take that very yeah well. i don't like, think so I would. no i'm gonna try it with her next time try it and see i'll i give you permission to try <laughs> well i you are very jovial today liz and I, I am i think it's because we have here a guest that yes. you know yeah, um, i'm happy and and you guys are going to have a really interesting conversation and the way all three of us once you allow me to come into that conversation we'll have an interesting conversation but we'll see how long the two of you can kick it around first and her name She's on the line right now. Her name is Lynn Mulherin, and she is a commissioner for the Florida Commission of Independent Education. Lynn, how are you? Hello, I'm fantastic. How about yourself? I'm doing fine. I think uh, I think we're ready. We're ready for you, Lynn. We're ready to kick it around, we're ready to talk, and we know you have a lot, a lot to say. I'm excited to chat with both of you today, but I have got to focus on Liz first. Well, you wouldn't be the first here, Lynn, but go ahead. <laughs> of course. I just want to congratulate her on her success. You know, I'm so thrilled about what you're doing, not just with Etta, but with the Black History and Culture Academy, Liz. Thank so you. you. You and I tell you, your LinkedIn is blowing up. So amazing accomplishments. Congrats. Thank you so much. And I will say, I wanted to also thank Lynn because she actually was the person that hired me for my first role in higher education. I actually was a little bit hesitant to- So sorry, Lynn, so sorry. (laughs) I was her best employee as an admissions counselor ever. And she actually gave me a chance because I actually came from a totally different field. I worked for nonprofit and she was like, wow, you have a lot of good skills. And I think you'd really be great in this role. So thank you, Lynn. You've been an inspiration to me and it's so good to circle back around and have an opportunity to speak with you today. Oh, it's so great to talk with you. You were one of our most caring and dedicated enrollment counselors. And it's just so thrilling to hear what people from our old team are doing now. And everyone is so successful, but Liz, you're just really hitting it out of the park. So congratulations. Thank you again. We've never met, but I'm happy for you too, what you're doing with that up experience. So Congrats to you too. Well, I'm glad I made I, it there. I tutored, I tutored him and got him to where he needed to be. Uh, so course. don't worry. <laughs> uh, I will say that I, I do control the editing button. Is so I, I guess I could start the episode from here then or to cut out the- <laughs> If all you right, cut this out, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, Lynn, you're, you're doing such great work. You've, uh, you've been, uh, gosh, in and around higher education for a couple of decades uh, working both in um, for-profit context, uh, working with no- uh, nonprofit schools. What's going on? I mean, you're in Florida, you're, you're, you know, seeing both small nonprofits, for-profits, big nonprofits and for-profits. In fact, we had uh, uh, Robert Kaiser on here not too long ago of Kaiser University and uh, Dr. Uh, Art Kaiser on not too long ago. And they're kind of big in Florida a little bit. What's the lay of the landscape? Give us uh, what's going on in Florida right now with institutions across the state. Well, you know, it's, it's been, as you know, a year of all years. And it's, I think everybody is coming out of the darkness now. It's been an exciting time as well as a very difficult time. Um, we just are about to close out the regular legislative session coming up next week. 
Um, and I think everybody would describe it as anything but regular, <laughs> but it's the, uh, there's a report that just came out from the Florida College Access Network and uh, you know, the House and Senate leadership here have really doubled down on their efforts to align education and the workforce as a way to expedite the economic recovery. So in the higher ed world, um, Floridians with the least amount of education were impacted the most in this COVID period. And so, you know, people with higher education recover faster, according to our data from the I guess it was 2008 Great Recession. Um, and most institutions had already introduced online and options for completion before COVID, but not everyone, of course. And in the K-12 world, of course, hardly anyone had offered online as an option. So a lot of students have lagged behind. A lot of students in college have dropped out, but overall, you know, I think that we are coming out of this. We will be better than before, but we, you know, there have been a number of challenges just as we've had across the nation with digital divide and other things having to do with online learning, which I'd love to talk about today if we have time. Of course. Well, I do want to ask you first because, um, you know, closures and mergers are, uh on the rise? I don't know what you want to say. And I, you know, this is, let me set this up for you a little bit, Lynn. And, you know, obviously we're on LinkedIn a lot doing, doing our work uh, and contributing to the conversation in higher education. And there are a lot of folks out there that are really, um, I, I say devaluing, but just basically eliminating the value of a college education these days. Now, and this isn't just the, you know, elite institutions are, accepting less students conversation, because that's a separate conversation. I think it's a, it's a big conversation, but when it comes to the landscape of higher education, it's a smaller conversation. The vast majority of institutions across the United States, and there are a lot more that are admitting students on a, what we don't call a regular basis. Um, but, but there are those out there that are just devaluing the overall uh, worth of a college degree. What is the uh, Department of Education in Florida think about this, uh, the Commission of Independent Education, when, when you're discussing institutions and degrees and offerings and the future? Well, it is absolutely on our minds as well that we want to make sure that the general population understands that a degree is still of value. And it may be a career in technical education, or it may be a bachelor's degree or, or further. Um, but the fact is that education and credentials are still critical for success and for being able to um, have that lifetime laddering. So, you know, the more that we can do to prepare for opportunity in our evolving economy for career preparation is, you know, post-secondary careers are absolutely still critical. And you asked about the closures and mergers and so forth. Yes, there will be situations where there will be consolidations, closures, and so forth, which were happening pre-COVID, but more will likely happen because of the dynamics of what happened this past year. Um, but in terms of the opportunity, which is what we like to think about, is not the doom and gloom piece as much as what is ahead and perhaps a boom would be thinking about essential careers 
and starting those with the essential programs that are stackable. Um, so perhaps starting someone out in a career in technical education and then building upon that with uh, um, an associate's degree and then a bachelor's and so forth. And it's also a time to double down on, on career services because so many people that are in school, we want to make sure they stay in school and don't give up. They need to continue to progress and what I like to call lifetime ladder. So just being able to continue moving forward, moving up. Um, so really, you know, taking the time with institutions to help them understand that career services are so critical is something that that we've been working through as well. Um, the, the online modality is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. We've certainly seen that um, with this digital transformation. It's, you know, likely going to be a hybrid for a lot of institutions and a lot of students is more suitable. Um, and then, you know, some programs are going to remain 100% online, especially in graduate programs, doctoral programs and so forth. But there are certain students that are just not meant for uh, online education and others that are. So, um, you know, I think the main thing to remember is to engage those students and have support for them along the way. Well, I'm just, I, you know, what I'm going to do right now is just kind of get out of the way, Liz, and let you and Lynn just do your thing. <laughs> yeah, so go ahead and just log off. You can come back. <laughs> Watch out when I hit the mute button on your little Zoom picture up here. Did you have smiling so innocently? Why would you want to do that? I never would do that, <laughs> oh, except I sometimes. I'd yeah. always do that sometimes. Yeah. There you go. Well, you know what? I'd love to talk about online learning. Actually, you do have some insight, so I'd love to have you um, add to your insight as well for some of this because we both, Joe and I, and I know Lynn as well, have a great interest in online learning, the, the modality itself, how it can increase access for students, how it can serve the non, can serve the non-traditional student. It's definitely not an option or the best option for everyone, but it does have some advantages that and, and benefits that if they're leveraged in the right, right way can be beneficial for students. So let's talk about leveraging that technology and how that can create equity. What are some of the things that you've seen over the past year that institutions, particularly in Florida, but even nationwide, have realized about online learning? Uh, what are some of the lessons? What are the things that have come to the forefront? I know the digi digital divide was one that you mentioned. What are some of the things that you think we can, as a sector, really drill down on as we go into the next uh, few years as we think about incorporating online learning to a greater extent? Yeah, well, make no mistake, remote instruction is not online learning. And so I have been concerned about the reputation of online education because of how it was implemented overnight at so many schools, which, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Um, and although in higher ed, most have introduced it, at least in a few program areas, but Zoom was the life raft from the burning ship in the storm and you, you can't shoot for the moon in a raft, right? So, you know, pre-COVID, the technology was there. The demand for access was there. The demand for completion was there. And the online pedagogy had already been developed and proven at institutions that pioneered or adopted early. So education has largely been fighting 
the online modality as a viable option for years and even decades. And the supply just hasn't been provided by enough institutions and almost none in K through 12. So online learning will outlast the pandemic, no question. Um, there's still enormous value in face-to-face -face learning, especially in K-12 and um, associates and bachelor's degrees, but Zoom and other technology saved most schools this past year and some of the cool new ed tech tools um, also, and you know, helped to engage asynchronously because you know, just having a talking head on Zoom was really not the synchronous way to go uh, for the learning to, to truly take place. So that really helped as people became more engaged with the asynchronous tools as well. Um, so there, you know, uh, educators did an amazing job. Um, what they had to do to transform in just a few months that would have normally taken a few years, right? It was incredible. But now I think true online learning can start to take place for those that are continuing that virtual um, in the virtual space. And we still have a long way to go, but now instead of pushing, because no one likes to be forced, especially overnight, we can pull, which is more inclusive, engaging, and exciting. What do you think some of the primary, when you talk about stackables, you talk about some of the different ways of incorporating smaller chunks of learning so that maybe not every student is going to be seeking a four-year degree or, or, you know, not every student necessarily wants to get an associate degree. What are some of the things that we've learned over the past year that can help us to maybe think about different ways of adjusting to the needs of the student? I think all of us come from a, from sect, a sector where we've always been very consumer oriented and we've learned to look at, well, what's the best thing for the student, but what are some of the things that you think as a sector, we need to focus on so that we can continue to look at a student first, um, student centric philosophy for higher ed? Yes. Well, I think one of the first things is partnerships from institution to institution. And a lot of those have already been going on, articulation agreements and those sorts of things. But if you look at career and technical education, CTE, it's not your father's Oldsmobile, so to speak, right? It's more than just hands-on working on the, you know, the workforce upskilling or the displaced and so forth. So helping students look at short-term credentials versus long-term degrees to get a start because short-term credentials can help with financial stability for students who are just starting out and maybe did not know college was an option for them and helps to provide a purpose in their lives with pathways that can go further down the road, but they've got to have access to those pathways. So really we have to be careful about policies and pathways like transfer courses, you know, options to move from one institution to another. So having more of that long-term perspective is, is going to be critical as people move from one degree to another, but also one institution to another. And with young people, word spreads fast. So when you start, when you get a program or a, a school that's, you know, doing really well, beating those needs, that's when people will talk about it and refer other people as well. 
Yeah, I, I, I want to drill down on that because I feel like that's, I guess my last point on that was, and this is something that I wonder about a lot, is do you think that, and a lot of this is philosophical questions, so I just want to pick Lynn's brain on a lot of the things that I always wonder about. Like this is the stuff that keeps me up. When we think about this, what you just said, which really resonated with me, that word spreads fast with uh, young people. I have a 22-year-old, and I, I think that that's really salient in that the generation of student now, they everything is instant. They're used to just, you know, everything being on demand. They're used to a seamless and frictionless process. They're actually also used to using their voice to be able to be heard. And I think the previous couple of generations before, like when I went to college, like if you didn't like stuff, it was like, well, oh, well, too bad. But now they will get online. They will go and rate, rate your professor. They will go on social media. They're a lot more empowered to uh, really express how they feel. Do you feel as though schools are prepared or, or what should our response be as far as creating um, systems where we're being more flexible or able to pivot more quickly, be more agile to meet students' needs? I think that's one of the, the frustrations and one of the questions that Joe and I often ask is it seems that in, with you being at, at more of a more of an administrative state level, do you feel as though schools are able to be as agile as they need to be? Or what are some of the things that, you know, you're advised, you advise institutions to do so that they can ensure that, you know, if a student has a need, we're able to, and obviously every single need we can't meet immediately, but how can we be responsive for those students when you say, well, student, if they don't like something, they're definitely going to walk with their feet. And we know that and we have to be responsive to that. What are some of the things that we can do to create those um, pathways so that we can be responsive and agile? Well, first of all, Elizabeth, I didn't realize you had a 22 year old. Oh my God. Yeah. I have a 22 year old who's in college and she took a, a gap year. And this is why I know that I've totally lost control control and and I you know I shouldn't necessarily have control but I think when I was her age I was very much whatever my parents wanted me to do I went straight to college I did my you know my 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 degree and and I was very focused on what made everybody else happy and I think this generation they're a lot more self-determined and self-aware and she was like mom I'm taking a year off I, I'm not really sure if I'm ready for college and she didn't enter college and she was just until she was 19. And then when uh, the pandemic happened, she actually took some time off again because she was like, I did online. I don't really like online. I want to wait until campus opens back up because I just feel like I'd rather be on campus and, and her campus is open again. So they're, you know, they're doing social distancing and mask wearing and things like that. But they're very, you know, able to make decisions based on what they think works best for them. And I think that's something that us as a sector we're kind of adjusting to the idea that, hey, if students don't like stuff, they're not just gonna go along to get along. They're like, hey, this doesn't work. So I'll take some time off or I'll, they, they kind of just go in whichever way they think works the best for them. What, what do you think we can do to be more aware or responsive to that? Absolutely. Well, we have to make room for adult students, number one, because adult students are often better students because they do want to be there. And you describe her as a you know, 22 year old and that's an adult student at the beginning of her career, right? Um, and there are different motivations than the teenager entering directly from high school. And higher ed was structured originally for full-time students right out of high school. So it's typically not 
good for older students. Um, it, you know, enrollment is restricted to two semesters a year. Credit for prior learning is not always accepted. Um, financial aid prioritizes uh, students right out of high school. You know, Pell, Pell Grant would certainly benefit older students, but it's just not designed specifically for them. So those are some of the kinds of things that we have to consider as we're building programs moving forward and then also building policies. And there's just the impediments overall um, that have been there that have been barriers for students in terms of complexity of systems and um, even just from a support perspective from the very beginning of a student inquiring with a university or a college or a community college or, or a technical school or whatnot. Um, even the website navigation is not always clear. The orientation is not always welcoming or, you know, may not, the student may not feel like they belong. And it may not be that the school is trying to, you know, come across that way at all. It's just that, you know, that particular student has not been catered to in the past. And so the communication may not be um, tailored to that student. Um, and, you know, even, even the younger students, you know, the 18 year olds that are coming straight out of school. I mean, there are different time schedules now. The traditional student, the, the non-traditional student is becoming the traditional student now. So time schedules, access to resources and support, those are all things that, you know, regardless of how old the student is, and what their experiences are in the workplace, you know, they are demanding more of those needs to be met and, and we should be working towards building a more welcoming and understanding environment for them to succeed. You know, social emotional learning is such a big piece of what we need moving forward, um, especially after a year that we've had with this COVID pandemic, you know, we have not even begun to see the impact of, um, you know, the psychological outcomes and just remain to be seen from this disruption for students, teachers, faculty, parents, everybody. So, um, you know, we're, we're not teaching business, management, math, English, and so forth. We're teaching people. And so, you know, we have to provide environments where there's trust and open communication and the ability to listen to what the needs are. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest needs that we're hearing this past year, especially, is that accessibility is a social cry. That is one of the biggest demands that has to be met um, and that more institutions seem to be uh, trying to attain. If you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now, you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to? And are you spending more time building reporting than listening in on what your students really want. All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing. Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. 
find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team at MDT is absolutely amazing. Whether it, your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution and it's free. mdtmarketing.com slash add up. Lynn, your experience, uh, you come from the for-profit sector uh, yeah. in your time of, with University of Phoenix and you helped hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of students achieve an education. Uh, with an incoming administration that's had a focus or may have a focus on uh, on you know, really regulation of for-profit universities, does the Florida Department of Education look at all colleges and say, you know what, it's about outcomes? Or do we look at all colleges for-profit and not-profit and say, no, it's about something else? Uh, are outcomes the most important measure of the success of, of a college or university in the state of Florida? Certainly outcomes are one of the biggest focuses for us. And as a commissioner, that's one out of seven commissioners here at the Florida Commission for Independent Education, we regulate and license all of the independent post-secondary and workforce institutions uh, with a focus on student protections. Uh, and along with that comes a lot of advising the leaders of those institutions like the school owners, the presidents, chancellors, CEOs, and leaders, and so forth. So- Is the leadership more concerned, no matter what the tax status of their institution is, is there more concern around successfully operating right now, giving, giving enrollment declines really in most schools, you know, other than, you know, the very elite institutions that have, you know, met their enrollment goals by turning away more students, but, but, you know, by and large, the institutions across the U.S. and in the state of Florida is the worry. What's keeping the school owners, CEOs, presidents, as you discussed, up at night right now? What's the one thing you're consulting about the most? Well, it certainly is partially about the enrollment, as you've mentioned, that there is a decline in some uh, areas, certain programs uh, or certain locations. And then on the other hand, there's an increase, you know, as I mentioned before, with essential programs and, that lead to essential careers, um, you know, some of those programs are booming, you know, nursing or health administration or technology and so forth. So there, I think one of the biggest concerns is career services and placement, helping students not just graduate from the schools, but to be able to get a job and start their careers after that. And so that's one of the biggest focuses that, that we have with our schools right now. Yeah, you know, we've had a lot of folks come on here. And Liz, uh, sorry, let me just ask this real no, fast. No, 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 go ahead. I'm, I'm... We've had a lot of folks ask about ROI. Not to ask about it, but just bring up ROI. Return on investment, you know, job readiness. These mm -hmm. are really important. That's It's what's causing the devaluing of the college degree because there's an, it's mm -hmm. being insinuated or statistics are showing that it's harder for people to get jobs and they end up in debt. And then the focus is be, is coming on, you know, maybe there's alternatives to what we consider a four-year traditional uh, college education. Of course, I'm talking about the traditional student, not the adult student right now. And those pathways can be career colleges. And those pathways can be the skills to job readiness. There, there are a number of careers that are, that are 
really can keep people well off if they get the specific skills in those areas. Is there a resurgence coming around this, the short course training programs, the diplomas, the certificates, the associate degree skills-based training programs? I think so. I know um, if I look at the uh, local community college here in Orlando, it's called Valencia. It's not really a community college anymore. We don't have a community college system any longer in Florida. It's a state college system, Um, but they have something that's called Tech Express and their students uh, can come from a, a career and technical education program and transfer into this Tech Express program and get an associate's degree. So it is a way for the student to be able to work at the same time as going through a CTA, CTE program and then having a pathway to an associate's degree. Now, I'm, I don't work directly with Valencia State College, but I, I just know about that through some of the calls I've been on. and. So that's been an exciting way to, you know, really help students see that they do have not only options that are um, programs they can get into, you know, throughout the year. They don't have to wait necessarily for a specific semester all the time. Uh, And, you know, they can get money in their pockets pretty quickly um, with a job and then, you know, move on to another level degree. So yes, it's, it's been, I think there is a little bit of a resurgence there. And I think that we'll see that continuing. I wanted to follow up on that question, because I think that that's a really good one as far as what are some of the concerns and what are some of the things that leadership and, and we have a lot of college leaders that listens to that listen to the podcast what advice what you know what are some you know small strategies or tips or pieces of pieces of advice that you would give leaders as they navigate uh, over the next year as things are starting to like you said we're coming out of this and we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel what are some of the things that you would advise leaders to really think about, focus on, drill down on as they look into moving beyond this uh, pandemic year? Well, it's definitely time to move from disruption to transformation. So we've been responding in the short term and it's time to invest in the long term. So we can have those sustainable models and really the three obvious trends our accessibility, which we talked about a little bit, and affordability and scalability. So we can't just weather the storm or get by. We've been in a free fall and you know, had to make changes. And I personally don't like to hear, I can't wait to go back to normal. You know, normal was never good enough anyway, right? That's right. So <laughs> we've had great. Five billion students out at the same time globally in 2020. It was a living laboratory of sorts, right? Of what works and doesn't work. So it would be not just a shame, but it would be a total lack of ingenuity and courage if we didn't emerge in a post-COVID world with a more student-centric approach across all of education. And it would be a disservice to not only today's students, but to future students too, who are gonna be living in a more accelerated digital and global economy. So I would argue that we would be doing a disservice to our economy if we do not adjust and evolve because human development is economic development. So as I mentioned before, accessibility 
is a social cry and that's the demand we're not supplying enough of. And so I think that having um, an inclusive, not an exclusive environment is really where the most improvement could come from. And we can't stay in that ivory tower and be relevant. You know, the revolution has already kind of started. So we can't retreat or ignore the cry for access, affordability, and scalability. So, um, you know, there was always a joke in education pre-COVID. You guys have probably heard it, that if Benjamin Franklin could time travel to the present day, the only part of society he might recognize is the classroom. So it's true. I've heard that. Uh, aren't we due or past due for the evolution of the classroom environment? So, you know, and in fact, in an ed tech conference earlier this week, um, I happened to hear the new um, United States Department of Education secretary speak, Dr. Miguel Cardona. And when he was asked about uh, you know, some of the systematic changes he was, while he's making systematic changes, what he needs from us, so to speak, uh, and the ed tech industry is who he was speaking to. But, um, and it was for us to share best practices, those models of excellence for a lift, because, you know, we need to be able to bottle this and share as quickly as possible what is working and what is not in this living laboratory that we have experienced this year. And some institutions have already experienced for years and decades. So let's share for the benefit of the students. So I think the biggest thing that we already touched upon before was making room for adult students. Um, I think that, you know, in the short term, leaders are responding and, you know, focusing on the health and safety, right? And the facility issues preparing to go back to school face-to-face. Longer-term, investing in student-centric, uh, you know, processes, procedures, curriculum, you know, everything to be centered around the student and to align with careers and social emotional needs. So all of this relates to access, affordability, and scalability, which really goes back to the age old concerns that have always been there from students, which is time, money, and fear. You know, those are the biggest concerns you hear from students when they are considering going back to school. So leaders may fear the impact of their decisions moving forward, but if we do nothing, the impact will be worse. So I think it's gonna take courageous enterprise leadership. Um, and, you know, that would be, you know, work across the organization as well as you do within your own area, having that enterprise wide view. So now success must be achieved, not only in the function, uh, the functional expertise, but also across the enterprise. And um, I think it was MIT, researcher that coined that term enterprise leadership. And I think I remember him saying that, you know, the uh, great leaders needed in this digital economy coming forth is, is not to be great at algorithms or um, technology, but it's, it's having to be, it's everything to be with being real, with asking for help, having humility, uh, expressing gratitude and having people feel connected to you. So, um, you know, I think that if we go back to the old routine, we're going to derail. And so I think this is really that great opportunity to have a mindset shift 
for educators um, and to create that sustainable model. So many, so many things I could talk about for hours and ideas and and suggestions and so forth, but I'll just stop there for the moment. <laughs> well, and that's fine, Lynn. Had had you given me more compliments at the beginning of the episodes, perhaps this <laughs> recording would go longer. But unfortunately, <laughs> it'll be a shorter recording. This that no, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, Liz, Liz uh, daily tests the the limits of uh, of my ego and what I'm able to handle as she over she her shadow becomes larger and larger to live in. Uh, or under, right, Liz? And I'm nurturing you and mentoring you so that you can also soar like an eagle. So you're, yes. you're going to get there. You definitely uh, That's will fine. We can, time. you know, we're approaching our, um, we'll probably have been, we will have been past our 200th episode by the time this airs. Oh, it was okay. somewhere around episode 101 where Liz promised to help me up my LinkedIn followers. Um, so in that 99 episodes leading up to uh, episode 200, I You've believe I've gone up 99 followers. In fact, <laughs> while Liz has no, been answered by a... 99,000. So... No, you're at 100 more than that oh, time. <laughs> what, because you unfollowed and refollowed me. That's the only reason. I was trying to boost your confidence. <laughs> Get out of here. Lynn, we want to be uh, we want to be respectful of your time. We we ask usually two final questions. We want to give you the mic, as they say. The first one: What did we not cover about the Florida Commission of Independent Education that you want to talk about? Whether it's initiatives, areas of focus, what's Lynn working on? Anything that you want to bring up? Any side projects? Anything that you're focusing on in your business or uh, side hustle, as we like to say here at the Edip Experience? And then question two. What is the future of higher education going to look like? Oh, boy. Wow, you're really asking for the crystal ball here now. Well, you know, it's it's not... We'll, we'll mark down this episode as the person who finally solved it, uh, Lynn, <laughs> if you'd like us to. Oh, well, then the future is certainly not for the faint of heart, but, you know, this is the work of our lives. This is everyone's future. And based on my transformation and risk management experience, I, I know that a crisis brings clarity. And we need to lead the transformation or the transformation is gonna lead us. So there is a place and a purpose for all institutions, for research universities, non-traditionals, nonprofits, for-profits, community colleges, technical schools, so forth. Um, options are important for opportunity, but universities are small cities with big problems today. And there's been this awakening and we've awakened the sleeping giant is I think is a good thing for the future. So I think we need nonpartisan agendas, no hidden agendas to move forward. And I, I guess, you know, I would say in, you know, future five years from now predictions, just digital learning is here to stay as we talked about, we're going to see more blended classroom options, but I think big tech will continue to get involved. And if, uh, we don't figure out in higher education how to make the changes we need to be more accessible and affordable and scalable, then big tech will step in. Um, and I feel like our kids and our adults are ready for more technology um, to enhance the learning experience, but our systems aren't. So that's a big piece that we've got to figure out. And um, you know, we've already talked about the the other things that you know. I think about the you know consolidations, closures, and so forth. I think um, you know there'll be more national universities, like you see with um, you know University of Maryland Global, 
University of Arizona Global and so forth. And then certainly some other affiliations and shared services and co-opetition, I like to call it. Um, and then adult education will continue to contribute to institutional survivor survival as we talked about. And I think I'd, I would urge your listeners to know that convenience is not lenience. So just because you're offering flexibility does not mean that you know, you'll have a reputation for having an easy program. That's not the case. Your, your academic quality can still be there um, and you can be inclusive and have flexibility, but still have the quality. So it's just a matter of defining of what success looks like in the future at your institution, depending on what your mission is. Um, I think that you know, we can't wait five years. Sadly, it's it's going to be too slow. And in a lot of ways, there will be a five, 10, 15 year approach for full transformation. But we got to move the ball, um, but we must do it right. It's got to be a sustainable model. It can't be the wild, wild west. We've got risk management to consider. So, um, you know, I think that uh, we respond in the short term, invest in the long term, and find that sweet spot with you know, taking care of silos and um, having silos morph, morph into a vent, more of a Venn diagram, you know, where you have that collaboration sweet spot. So lots more work to do. Yeah. But, um, How about the commission? What are you guys working on? Anything in, in particular or anything you're working on? Well, we're still working with schools on, um, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm one of seven commissioners. So we have really been immersed with our schools this year on the online modality and, you know, making sure that the schools that had never offered it before that were helping them uh, along the way and connecting them with schools that have already been involved with the online modality. And so that's been the biggest thing and health and safety and so forth. So we're kind of in that same spot as most institutions are and, you know, continuing to work towards the future. So, um, but, you know, I, I don't think we really missed anything, so to speak, you know, that I wanted to communicate. We, we definitely, covered a lot and I would just, I would probably just end with saying something that I heard a fourth grader say on a Zoom presentation, which was about their virtual learning experience. And he said, I didn't win, but I didn't lose, I learned. And I think we can all learn from that fourth grader because what did we as leaders discover that can help us evolve as better educators and what are we going to do about what we learned? So I, I think the future of education is to help students be a better version of themselves, like that fourth grader. And you know, we all love a success story, and that's why I love Liz's success story so much because she, um, you know, gives us a lot of hope. Um, because look at the the um, accomplishments that she has made that so many people. Uh, are also working towards a goals and um, exciting things in the future. So there's a lot of hope and a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of work ahead to get there. It always comes back full circle back to you, Liz, <laughs> in the end, doesn't it? Hey, what can I tell you? But I appreciate that, Lynn. That means the world to me. I really do appreciate you. Well, thanks for inviting me. I love what you guys are doing. Keep up the awesome work. 
<laughs> well, there you. you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the Edup Experience with Lynn Mulherin. She is a commissioner for the Florida Commission of Independent Education. Lynn, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, everybody. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Edup Experience. To learn more about the Edup Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.